Have you made any new friends this week? Some of you may know that uh, our daughter Morgan got to come home for the weekend from Baylor, and it's our, our, her first time to be home since she started college. And that was one of the questions I asked her. Tell me about some of your new friends. Last week, we started a journey through the book of Acts. And we met a new friend last week. Now, Peter and John were on their way to the temple for a prayer meeting, for a time of worship. And they came across a man, I suspect, one that they had passed by many times before. And this man who was lame and could not walk, he, he looked up and, and looking for help, begging for alms, and, and Peter and John stopped. And they said, silver and gold have we none, but what we do have, we want to give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise, walk. And they reached down and grabbed him by the arm and, and picked him up. And they began to go on into it prayer meeting. And you can imagine the, the celebration, the excitement and joy that began to spread throughout that area. As here's this man, he was 40 years old, the scripture tells us. Here's this man who had most likely been placed in this same spot, right, by the temple most of his life to beg alms. And now he's walking, praising God for what had happened in his life. We made a new friend. Isn't that exciting? But you know, it seems like whenever we make new friends, and especially whenever God begins to do some new and exciting things in our midst, and we see the power of God demonstrated and manifested, there are the, always those that want to come against that. There are always those foes that come around. And if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 4, we're going to meet some of those foes. Verse 1, as they were speaking to the people, again, Peter and John, as, as the crowd had gathered, as they were telling the story of how God had healed them, they began to preach and tell the good news of Jesus and how he had healed this man. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The foes of Jesus were there again in the temple, disturbed at what they were beginning to hear and to understand. Let's reflect just briefly on who the Sadducees were. The Sadducees were those wealthy Jewish leaders, community leaders who, many of them owned land, had wealth, maybe have been the, the business owners, and their greatest concern with the Roman occupation of Jerusalem was peace. And in getting to know the Roman leaders and, and kind of working out a deal, some might say a compromise, it was kind of understood, Sadducees, as, as long as the peace is at hand, we'll let you kind of do things the way you want to. We won't mess with your properties, we won't mess with your businesses. You help us keep 
the status quo. You help us keep peace in this place. And so as things began to stir in the temple, and again, this is one of the reasons the Sadducees were, were so vehemently opposed to Jesus. And they'd assumed that that threat was over. And yet here we go again. And this threat began to be known and there was a stirring in the temple and the Sadducees heard about it and they moved quickly to get to the temple to address the issues and the problems at hand. But, but it's not just that there was a, a, a little concern about what was going on in the temple. They were concerned about what these disciples were preaching. They were proclaiming Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. Now their party line and their party story Thank you. Their party line and their party story was, oh, one of these disciples, they stole the body of Jesus. He really didn't rise again. We don't believe in resurrection. And now here these guys are, having done a miracle in the name of Jesus, proclaiming that he was really alive. And that the Sadducees were disturbed. And they came into the temple and they had Peter and John arrested. And the next morning they gathered the, the, the council and the Sanhedrin and those religious leaders together. And John and Peter were brought in front the high priest. Now remember, this, is, this has to be just a few months, three or four months, five months, I, I don't know, but, but something along those lines since we encountered this same scene with Jesus. In fact, the scripture says here in Acts 4 that Peter and John stood before Annas and Caiaphas, who were the same religious leaders that Jesus had stood before and who, and who had put Jesus to death. And it's also interesting about Peter and John. What were they doing when this scene was unfolding with Jesus just a few months ago? They were kind of hiding in the shadows, weren't they? In fact, the scripture tells us it was Peter who in that moment, as he was identified as a follower of Jesus, denied him and fled. And we know that at some point, John Mark fled too as he left that scene. But today, here in Acts chapter 4, they are standing before Annas and Caiaphas. And Annas and Caiaphas in the council asked them this question. Verse 7. By what power or in what name have you done this? Who gave you permission to disturb things in the temple and to jeopardize the peace and stability that we have here with Rome? You see, the Sadducees were afraid of anything that might threaten the status quo, that might threaten their position of power and of authority. Who gave you permission? By what name are you doing this? Well, that was just the question that John and Peter were waiting for. And with confidence, they stood, not cowardice as was demonstrated, not fear as was demonstrated the last time, but with great confidence, with great boldness and courage, they stood before 
Annas, and Caiaphas. Have you ever been in that position, in that place, where you felt the surge, the, the filling of the Spirit in that moment where you knew the presence of God was with you? Have you ever felt that moment or been in that place where the power of God came over you and you were ready, you were bold, you were courageous, you were ready to say and to do what was required? I think that's what took place here with Peter and John. You know, Jesus talked about this in Luke chapter 21. In Luke 21, verses 12 through 15, listen to Jesus as he prepares his disciples for his own crucifixion and for their own ministry and for the persecution that they were going to suffer at some point. Jesus said this to his disciples in chapter 21. They, they will lay their hands on you and they will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. But it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds. Isn't this interesting? Make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. For I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or to refute. I wonder what Peter and John did in prison that night. If they remembered this passage, which I suspect they do, I doubt they stayed up cramming all night for an exam. Right? Isn't that interesting? You don't need to prepare for, for what's going to happen when you face those people who are coming against you. Why? Because the Spirit of God is going to fill you in such a way that you're going to know exactly how to respond. You're going to know exactly what to say and to do in such a way that they will not be able to refute or resist your testimony. I can't help but think that that's what Peter and John were, were thinking as they stood in front of these people who had put their Savior, their Lord, to death. Wondering what they were going to say as the questions began to come. And yet with the confidence of having been reminded of what Jesus said to them before his own death. So listen to how the Spirit directed Peter in verse 10. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazarene. Remember he'd been asked by what name and by what authority? By the name of Jesus the Christ, whom you crucified, and whom God raised from the dead, by his name, this man stands before you in good health. And I imagine they said, and this man <laughs> right here, the one that was lame, the one that's been sitting out in the gate that couldn't walk for 40 years, that man was healed by this name. The evidence of the truth in which we proclaim is standing before you. By what name, by what authority do you live and do you act? And now that Peter and John had kind of broken the ice, they just kept going. And they got to retell the story of Jesus and how he came and lived and how he died and how he rose again. And then in verse 12, listen to what they say. And there is salvation in no one else. 
And I believe this word salvation means in every way possible. Here's how those Roman, I'm sorry, those Sadducees and and, and that council may have heard this. Hey guys, you think you're going to find peace and safety and security in this Roman government, this culture they've brought in and and that they're oppressing us. And as long as we appease them, that life is going to be good. Listen here, there is salvation in no one else but the Messiah, the Christ, and it's Jesus. And you killed him, put him to death. But the good news is that he is alive. There is salvation spiritually, physically, politically, in in every way possible. There is salvation through Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which you must be saved. Interesting as we continue to read there that these learned religious leaders kind of step back in amazement, in wonder at how these unlearned, uncultured fishermen were able to stand up in front of them. And then it dawned on them. Scripture says in verse 13, they began to recognize that they had been with Jesus I wonder how many people stop and ponder about us. Oh, wow. They've been with Jesus. They've been with Jesus and they've been transformed. They've been with Jesus and there's a passion about God and about his people and about all people because they've been with Jesus. They recognize that he'd been with Jesus. They have this healed man next to them that they cannot dispute. And now we talk about what I like to call the confounded foes. Look what in verse 16. They dismiss Peter and John. (laughs) It's time to go into closed session. Everybody out. And here's what they say. Hey guys, what are we going to do with these men? What are we going to do with them? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all, to everyone who lives in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Has anyone ever asked that question of you or of us? What are we going to do with those folks? What are we going to do with this person in my office that is a follower of Christ? What are we going to do with him? What are we going to do with her? What are we going to do with that group of people that claim to be followers of Christ and seek to live that out in the way they interact with each other and the way they engage the world? You see, what shall the world do with us when our words and when our practice are in harmony, demonstrating the loving and healing and saving power of God. And what shall the world do with us when we stand in that way and it offers a strong and firm and visible contradiction and even indictment against the world and the culture in which we live? What are they going to do with us? Is anyone asking that question? A Southern California pastor was asked to serve, he was back in the, in the early 90s, 
was asked to serve on a panel discussion, and he, gave, he was given this testimony at a, a conference I was at. He was asked to be on a discussion panel concerning the impact of abortion in their community. He was a past, an Anglo pastor in, a, in an urban area, a, a, an inner city area. And he was asked to be a panelist on one of these community-wide events. One of the fellow panelists came to the event to defend and even to promote abortion as one of the best options for young, poor, unmarried women. She was particularly harsh on Christians. Now listen to this. She was particularly harsh, harsh on Christians and churches who offered law and guilt and condemnation. This young pastor, however, came with a young unwed mother and her newborn baby. He and his family had adopted this mother when she was pregnant and when she was looking at all of her options. They assured her that there was another way than what she was hearing on the streets and what was acceptable in the culture in which she lived. They promised her that she would receive the, the medical care and the support that she needed to go against the pressures she was facing in order to end the pregnancy. And they went on to say, we will walk with you even after the baby is born to provide and to make sure that, the, that, that you and the baby would not grow up in poverty. You see, he and his church promoted a different way that honored the life of the child, but also brought healing and hope to the unwed and abandoned mother, even to the point of opening and welcoming into their home this young lady. The woman on the panel was confounded, and I believe from his testimony was quiet the rest of the night. You see, she had not heard of Christians acting in this way before. And surely what was going through her mind was, what shall we do with the people like this? For we cannot deny that something miraculous and God-inspired has happened in this testimony. What shall we do with people like this. This was the question that the religious leaders were a asking. They didn't know what to do. They'd arrested them. They had threatened them. They had imprisoned them. They had flogged and beaten them. In fact, they were so angry at one point they were going to kill them. But in that particular and unique moment, because of the support of, the, of those people in the temple and that all of Jerusalem was, was aware that this man had been healed and they had the support of the people, the council could not find them guilty and see that they were put to death by the Romans. So here's what they did. They threatened them. Now we're going to let you go this time, guys, but don't you ever let us catch you teaching and preaching in this name and stirring up the people in the temple. We don't ever want to see this. If you do it again, there's going to be some real serious consequences, guys. They threatened them, and they let them go. Now, if you thought they were bold and courageous before, let's listen to these courageous and bold friends as they respond 
And as they leave that place to continue to engage in kingdom work. Verse 19 and 20, they reply, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Oh, that we would continue to tell the story of what we have seen and heard God do in our lives and in the lives of those around us. We go on down to verse 30. When they reconnected, they rejoined with the other believers. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. You see, they'd experienced the promise and the, the, the truth of, the, of, of Christ in their lives. They'd witnessed in their own lives how the words just came. And the words could not be resisted. Acts chapter 5 verse 12 tells us that they returned to the temple and many signs and wonders were taking place. And in verse 17, we're told that again, the Sadducees were concerned and they rose up again and they threw them into jail. But this time, an angel or a messenger of the Lord came and freed them during the night. The guards did not know that they had been freed. And the next day, those Sadducee leaders had sent for Peter and John to be returned to the council so that they could undergo interrogation and questioning again. But when the guards went, they weren't there. And they came back fretting, what are we going to do? Where are these men? They've escaped. And word came to them, hey, the guys you threw in jail last night, they're back in the temple preaching and teaching. And they went to get them and they brought them before them. And look at verse 28 in chapter 5. We gave you strict orders. We told you guys not to do that again. Verse 29. And we told you that we were going to obey God rather than men. And they go on and continue to preach to the Sadducees and to the council that God raised up Jesus whom you put to death on the cross. And by this time, the, the Sadducees and the, this council, they were infuriated. And look down in verse 33. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they intended to kill them. They had had enough with this being nice. They'd had enough with just beating them and putting them in prison. They were going to kill them finally. But notice what happens here. If you'd allow me to say, an unexpected friend arrives on the scene in the person of Gamaliel, a Pharisee, who is an incredibly respected teacher and leader among the Jewish folks. As you continue to read there in verse 34, listen to what Gamaliel says. Well, first of all, he offers two examples. Examples of religious, political leaders insurrectionists, maybe messianic-type figures who had gathered a following and they'd claimed to be someone important. They'd claimed to be that Messiah. They'd claimed to be that leader that was going to free them from the Romans. And Gamaliel reminds the group, they were killed. And soon afterwards, their followers scattered. 
And Gamaliel would have reminded them, Jesus has been put to death. Implying that his, scatter, his, his followers will scatter soon. Let's pick up in verse 38. Gamaliel offers this counsel. Stay away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Or else you may even be found fighting against God. They took his advice. They said, yeah, you know, you're right. If this isn't real, they'll be gone in just a few more weeks. That's what they were hoping for. So they flogged them. They beat them. They said, don't do it anymore. They let them go. And listen to how chapter 5 concludes. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Isn't that an incredible story? An incredible story of how the Spirit of God, the presence of Christ, transformed the lives of these early disciples, these apostles. As we finish our time together this morning, here's the question that we must ask. What is there about our life? What is there about your life? What is there about your family that demands an explanation? Let me shorten that if you'd allow me to. Is your life ignorable? You claim to be a follower of Christ, committed to his kingdom, living in a way that brings glory to him. Is your life ignorable? Are people just ignoring you, the way you live? What is it about your life that demands an explanation? What is it about your life that can only be explained through the presence and the power of God? Lloyd Ogilvie, theologian and commentator, said this, he said, the deeper that we go in Christ, the more people will be forced to wonder. Is your relationship with Christ such that people wonder about you? You see, the world may reject us. It may desire to kill us. But can it ignore us? Is the world even curious about who we are? Does the world want to join us? That's what's fascinating about this story in Acts is that, that believers were coming to, to, to follow Christ as a result of this testimony. Is the world coming to say, yeah, I want to be a part of this. I want to be a part of this kingdom. What is it about our life together that can only be explained by God? This last week, as we've been talking about our community ministry and some of the things that we believe God is leading us to do, we, we, we host a manifest luncheon on the first Wednesday, which was the second Wednesday this month. And I was just, I sent out an email saying that we were going to share a new initiative about ministry in downtown Norman on Sundays. One of the emails came back, wow, I'm interested in this. I'll be there. What is it about your life, our life, that demands an explanation that creates curiosity? Are we invested in things that only can be explained by God's presence? The world is looking. May we be faithful. 
May we obey God rather than men. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of life. We thank you for the presence of your spirit. And Father, how we desire to be in in worship, in prayer times, in Bible studies where it just seems like the ground shakes around us. And we want to be involved in in ministry and reaching out to the lost in ways that creates a stir. And people want to know what's going on. By whose name and authority do you do this? Lord, give us courage and boldness. May we trust in you. Today, as we enter into a time of singing, it's your opportunity to reflect and to make your commitments, maybe for the first time, maybe to renew those commitments. If as a part of that process you'd come and and share and we can pray together or maybe share with the entire congregation. But let's celebrate what God is doing. And let's leave this place obedient to the work of God's Spirit. Let's stand and sing together.